0: Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a daily plant productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wild Bo's Return to the World of Parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and as my reward for a job well done, I have been given Scott Daly.
1: Yes, Matt. I've been I've been thinking about this a lot, and if I concentrate really hard and squint a, a little, I think I think I can be happy being your podcast partner. If you'll have me.
0: No. I'd die for you, Scott, but I could never be a podcaster.
1: <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is us making a terrible joke out of the most emotionally devastating moment in the book so far. So uh you're you're welcome.
0: At least it didn't involve a blanket. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes. Uh, as you said, Matt, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wildbow's world of cyclical dream memories, intermittent domestic tranquility, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this web serial. This week, we'll be talking about Arc 5 Shadow, chapters 5.D and 5.6. And this week, Matt, it's finally time. It's finally time for Rain's memory dream as we learn what he did to earn the ire of his cluster and then, on the eve of war, Victoria guest stars on the hit GBC sitcom, C-53 Living, starring everyone's favorite power couple, Sveld, <laughs> which is a name I just made up.
0: That's excellent. But it's perfect. It's almost like Svelte, so... It know, is. It is. It's perfect. It's amazing. Yeah, these are some very, very dense chapters, uh, so of course, as usual, this will be a multi-hour episode covering <laughs> two chapters. <laughs> um. Yeah. The, the, we've been we've been waiting for the rain interlude for so long. So much happens in there. It, it's amazing. It's it's everything we wanted it to be, and and you know, like I, I think when I, I, I think everyone wanted the next Victoria chapter to be like, all right, let's get into this battle that we're all l- looking forward to slash dreading. Um. But n- like, no one, no one was upset that they. You know, had to sit through this extremely touching and and you know satisfying domestic interlude at, at Waldenstetter's house. Um, overall, it's just a wonderful pair of chapters.
1: Yeah, and they're very
0: they're very different from each other. Mm-hmm. You're
1: absolutely right that that there is the the well the uh, rain chapter where it's filled with melodrama and it's really emotional and devastating, and then we've got this this Victoria chapter that is. Um, there's tension in the air. You can kind of feel it. You can feel that the tension about the, the, the events of the following day are going to bring on everything. But yeah, there's this real, this, this kind of slowdown and, and moment of, of happiness. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it's going to make the events of the next day, whatever they end up being all the more devastating, but, uh, we will get to that when we get to that chapter.
0: I think you're right. All right. So, moving on, uh, announcements this week. Just reminding everyone, the we've got Ward Fan Art contest with the topic being the misfit toys ends April 4th. So, get those submissions in to us, please.
1: Yeah. It's getting we're running out of I think there's only 3 weeks left now. Man, yeah. time's going fast. Um can't wait to see what you guys got for us. We're Really excited.
0: Yeah, I think 3 weeks is enough time to draw a picture. So,
1: yeah, and as always, th- this coming from people who are not artists. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, you can check out in the show notes in this episode, or you can go on over to dailyplanetfilms.com. That's all the details of the rules, the prizes, the submission guidelines, all that stuff. So go check that out and, uh, and show us what you got. Can't yep. wait.
0: Uh, as far as the, we didn't got ward section. I don't think we made any egregious mistakes last week, so we're just going to move on.
1: Yeah. Go us. We're perfect. That's what that means. It means we're perfect.
0: Exactly. Uh, so next, Community Spotlight, where we read what people wrote from last week's thread in answer to our discussion question. The, the discussion question was, can the cops and robbers norm persist in the Wild West of Gimel, and should it? So um, we're going to be uh, changing up how we do this a little bit, first off. Yeah. Uh, and, and generally, we got a bunch of responses to the effect of cops and robbers was never a real thing. It was just a story tale told Taylor to try to keep her with the undersiders. And while I think that's it's true that Lisa put a little sugar coating on stuff to make it sound better to Taylor, the concept of the unwritten rules between heroes and villains was absolutely a thing. The rules around exposing each other's identities, you know, were, were, were real, they were enforced. There were norms against going for the kill, which were ubiquitous except for kind of the fringe enemies that everyone teamed up against, like the nine, you mm-hmm. know, a- escalating too far and too quickly. Um, t- uh, again, teaming up against the end bringers and agreeing not to fight each other during during those attacks. Like th- these are these are all real things. And when we say cops and robbers, that's the name we're putting on the system of equilibrium between the heroes and villains. And uh, we definitely could have done a better job explaining that's what we meant. Um, I I get now that that wasn't obvious because like in my mind, I was just thinking it was a question that had popped into my mind while I was reading those chapters from last week and i didn't really realize that uh, we hadn't recently discussed this idea of what the cops and robbers norms were and 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 like victoria is very much trying to get back to that norm like that is her goal you could say she she wants everything to be heroes and villains heroes punch the villains and put them in jail <n-> nobody <laughs> yep. gets killed that's what she wants and and that's why the question popped into my head is i was like i don't really see that happening so that's why that's why I wanted people to talk about it. Anyway. Yeah.
1: And you are not alone in that opinion, Matt. We have lots of people who also don't see that happening. Once again, um, for the people that that kind of got where we were going with it, um, there were so many so many great responses to this. Um, we have, as Matt said, we have kind of tried to change this a little bit um, and, and maybe uh, eased up on the sheer number of responses we were pulling to try to make this section go by a little quicker. Um, but, and we're going to try to combine, so it, there, there are going to be times when if some of you said something similar to someone else, we're going to kind of lump you guys together. Um, not saying that you didn't have different nuances on that same question answer, but it was close enough to, we feel like, uh, we want to give everyone credit for their answers. So we're going to kind of group people together. And I think this first, this first response is a great example of that because, uh, PETA Enigma basically says that that cops and robbers didn't really even didn't really ever even persist back in worm so that the idea they would they would be able to happen on earth gimel and ward is, is pretty optimistic or or pessimistic, depending on which way you look at it. Um, and they also said that the big thing they said was that the reason—the only reason that the system was able to exist as it was back in Worm was um, because of Cauldron's influence and the way they kind of manipulated and controlled things behind the scenes. And, and the fact that they're gone now means that there's just no way this could this this system could perpetuate in the world. And that sentiment was echoed by a bunch of people: uh, Viper, Hawks, Negation, and Zakri. All said something very similar to that. That. Uh, cops and robbers only existed because of Cauldron. Cauldron's gone now. Uh, the odds of, of this system being able to survive without them is uh, very low. So what, yeah. what do you think about that response, Matt?
0: Yeah, I, I I I always tend to forget that Cauldron was instrumental in keeping all those plates spinning. Uh, there's other stuff that's different now. Like, for example, um, I think we might even have a chance to get into this in this episode. But, you know, the inbringers the aren't really a threat apparently anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was another thing that was kind of justifying the capes, um, continued ability to behave in, in that fashion. And, and I think that now that we're in a world where the capes are no longer like the saviors and the last bulwark against the inbringers, people are going to have a lot less patience for this tomfoolery. Um, you know it it's it basically yeah. I, I think something I said to you earlier, like it used to be the Inbringers were defending against uh, sorry the the capes were defending against the Inbringers, which were the greatest existential threat now the capes are the are the greatest existential threat to humanity um and yep. and and so it's it's a different it's a very different roadmap and and the cops and robbers kind of falls in there somewhere
1: yeah and i I do think that there is a um cauldron had the influence the power, the ability to kind of make sure that that the the consequences for breaking these rules were real and i don't know if that that those consequences actually exist in earth Gimmel anymore there there are people that are going to still try to abide by them and uphold them um but what what happens if someone breaks it and what happens when someone else sees that when someone breaks it nothing as bad happens to them We I mean, were already seeing B of burden say i don't care about this yeah like it doesn't matter Um, so it's gonna be interesting and and I'm I'm kind of gonna agree with that without like a central power structure whether it's uh up front or hidden I don't know if, if if that equilibrium can actually be maintained
0: yeah yeah um so next contributor King Curly says can cops and robbers persist maybe should it, without a shadow of a doubt, when it breaks down, you get the slaughterhouse nine powers are so extremely deadly. Even Reigns, who wouldn't be so weak if he wasn't willing to kill, uh, that that there need to be some sort of system in place that encourages heroes and villains to pull their punches. Um, I think that's that's interesting because if we accept that they have this conflict drive, then uh, the cops and robbers thing is um, a relatively safe way of of letting them vent <laughs> right. that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and like this this idea that what, what like we've seen what these battles look like when when capes go all out. Like we've seen the the destruction and devastation reaped by a, a cape not holding back. So um the idea of this this unwritten equilibrium that makes people not want to do that or at least like encourages them to not do that can be seen as a good thing. And you're always going to have people that break that. You're always going to have people that aren't as concerned with that. But the reason why I think you and I were talking about this earlier today, that the reason why the slaughterhouse nine was such a big deal is because they were threatening this equilibrium by just ignoring it. And that's why everyone needed to team up to take them down. It's because the system could not shoulder that.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that people like Victoria and people like Taylor were essentially aligned in wanting there to be this norm of, you know, you know, S- Semi consequence free violence that they could indulge in.
1: Yeah, I also liked um, what King Curly said about that idea that Rain's power would not be weak if he was willing to kill people. Yeah, which is which is absolutely true. If he was willing to just kill everyone, he would have a very strong power because you just slice someone half and then kick them and they fall in half. Yeah. Um, and it's really only because he's not willing to make that step that his power is perceived as so weak. And are, are, is he going to be driven to a point where he that he's he's that that is no longer something that stops his action, that this this mm-hmm. desire to not kill anymore. And I think we kind of we, we seem to be pushing him towards that at least a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, next commenter.
1: Yeah. Uh, Revan answer says uh, cops and robbers was less about Cape versus Cape conflict and more about an honor system that props up a mutually assured destruction between the powered and the unpowered cops and robbers encourages capes to act publicly by incentivizing the idea of costumes and masks and, and these characters and, uh, and actually attempting to make capes accountable to the same laws as, as non capes would just encourage them to act more secretly, which would only make things generally worse. Cause if they're operating not in public, then then it's not obvious who they're murdering. I think the example they used was, what if someone was like Taylor that wasn't interested in like having a public persona and just literally sat inside a building and assassinated people from a comfy chair and no one would ever know where it came from?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, that that's a lot like the cold capes in India where, yeah, yeah. Where, where basically the gimmick with them wasn't even that they were bad guys, that like the cold cape didn't mean villain, it just meant the underworld capes some of them were fighting for good in some sense and some of them were just villains like the nine but they were all ruthless killers and yeah that was one place where the cops and robbers norm was definitely not in play
1: yeah and a Answer says that on gimel the whole equilibrium is kind of shattered because the traditional societal norms don't exist anymore there's there's not this like like Society was, society was built before the existence of capes, so there was this, this general idea that non-powered people should be protected, and, and, and that the, the law was kind of built and supported by them, but that's gone. And Revanancer argues that the only way to really restore this equilibrium is, is through a lot of violence on the non-cape side. The only way to restore it is for them to, to fight back, and it, bloodily. Which mm-hmm. is sort says,
0: of how the story started, right?
1: Yeah, I think you're right, yeah
0: yeah somebody getting shot so and that's
1: and that's that's interesting because that's also kind of part of the war that's that's brewing right now um i know that the other the other world actually has a lot of capes in them now because there were rumors about cauldron influence and whatever but it seems to be that this is a conflict between like the existence of capes is threatening our safety because the the broken triggers and whatnot. And we like, you're just making us unsafe by having these capes. So I think, I think that is going to be one of the big conflicts that that rises up is the non-powered people pushing back against the powered and, and what that's going to look like. And it it could very well be for this, this desire to restore equilibrium. I mean, I don't think it'll be a conscious attempt at that, but it'll be them, the non-powered people feeling truly powerless in this world for the first time um and and trying to rewrite that equilibrium
0: yeah right it's, it's it's like like they always say the only thing necessary for evil to happen is for everyone to just follow whatever their immediate incentives are, yeah next commenter Colinero, says the issue with cops and robbers isn't with cauldron but with status quo with the status quo completely gone. The real danger now isn't that capes no longer play by cops and robbers' rules. The danger is that cops and robbers Becomes the only rule, which is a pretty sorry substitute for actual due process and accountability. The best case scenario is that cops and robbers only exists until a new legal system can be imposed, one that has the existence of capes written into its very bones. I like this a lot, and and this was, this touches on kind of an inkling of what I was thinking of when I when we came up with the question, which was like basically like what does natalie think about all this because natalie always fascinates me as a character because it seems like she has her own ideas of how things should be and they're so far away from victoria's ideas of how things should be that they can't even productively communicate about things like like natalie's like things are going to look really different and victoria's like you mean what do you mean? Well, like <laughs> she, she doesn't want things to be different. And, and I think people like Natalie, who who is just a normal human really would prefer things to be different. And it would actually be a, a, a you know, tragedy for them. If like Calinero says, it would just continue to be, Oh, it's cops and robbers. The capes get to do whatever they want and cause lots of collateral damage. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And I, I, this was, I mean, I, I don't want to pick favorites, but, I really like this comment a lot. I really like this take. Um, we summarized it the best we could. Calinero was a little more detailed with with as he went through this explanation, but yeah, I mean, the the cool thing about Natalie, and I think we're going to get into this in this section this week is Natalie is really our our character's only contact with the non-powered. Like every everyone we know in the story so far is a cape. Everyone. And their only really connection back to the normal people is through Natalie. And it's someone who is often frustrated with them and is, is tended to be listened to up until the point that she stops agreeing with what they're saying. And then is either ignored or like they go out of their way to try to justify their actions to her. And I think that's a very interesting thing that, that we haven't seen very much in the story so far, what, the lay people think of what's going on. I mean, I think Jerry the Fruit Guy is one of the only one of the only ones.
0: Yeah, right. We, I mean, basically we've got normal people shooting at capes. We've got Jerry the Fruit Guy at least glad that some heroes were around to fight off the villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a a range definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
1: All right, the next comment is uh from not fully coping. Um they say in the post-gold morning world there aren't enough good capes to force this equilibrium because everyone's so spread out, the infrastructure isn't there for fast communication, and the legal system can't be used to scare people away from doing something really bad. I think it may be better to have a legal system with these kind of hierarchical stages of bad guy enshrined in it, so people are not just judging for themselves what really crosses a line. And I think that's an interesting take. Um one of the one of the, the things that we talked about in Worm so much was was the villain the the label of villain versus the label of bad right Mm -hmm. and the legal system really had no way of classifying things like you were you were a villain then the law the law had to deal with you whether or not you were truly a bad guy or not and i guess they're kind of echoing the idea that any kind of legal system in this new world has to have classifications of a villain written into it in some way yeah you have to be able to deal with with different classes of what these villains are
0: and it has to be done in a way where it's enforceable because you know right in in on bet they put canary in the birdcage you know to to make a point basically and if they tried something like that now it would just blow up in their face because right. they they don't have the power to kind of impose that level of um standards on people
1: yeah i mean i think the honest truth and we kind of touched on this in the the question about uh, what, what a legal system would look like. The honest truth is that the non-powered people don't have any power <laughs> right yes. now. I mean, like, like the, there's no, there's no system, which if the wardens said tomorrow, okay, this is how it's going to be. I mean, it, maybe some of the other teams would push back against them. Some of the villain teams might push back against them, but would any n- civilian on earth Gimel be able to stop them? I don't right. think so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost de facto like a cape dictatorship, which is which is interesting. I mean, we're definitely reading very deep between the lines here, but that is kind of what happens when you have these demigods like Valkyrie walking around. Um, basically, she's only complying with anyone else's orders, like because she feels like it, you know. There there's there's no um yeah, the, the capes are yeah. their own force, they can do whatever they want, basically.
1: Right, right. It's troubling.
0: Okay. Yeah. So next comment from Kao Subalu. A lot of this depends on if the current power players even want to reestablish it. Some probably do, like tattletale and some of the wardens, but most probably would prefer a system that lets them exploit their own advantages. Um that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that's a take on the practicality of it. Not so much like theoretically, would this be a good thing? But could it would it actually happen? Like, um, yeah. And I I think I think the deciding factor on that is is how many of the most powerful people um, are are, do want it. Like if if the most powerful capes on one side or the other see this as an advantageous situation, then I think it'll happen. But if there are power people, really, really powerful people on one side or the other or both that don't, then uh, and then it probably won't.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the, the, the advantage of having a strong norm is that everyone is aware of the norm and everyone has agreed to it and everyone knows that everyone else is aware of it and has agreed to it. And so right. there's a lot of like social conformity to it, even in a weird setting like this involving superpowers. Um, but if if there are, like you said, if there's a threshold, like number of capes who are like, you know what, screw it, I'm going to go I'm going to knock over a convenience store and if any heroes come after me, I'm going to, I'm going to kill them. And that, and that just becomes, you know, typical, then the norm just shatters and it's just, it, you can't get it back. I don't think.
1: Yeah. What's that? Um, There's that, that logic experiment about like cheating versus telling the truth and like a, a, I can't remember. It was like a, a a game logic experiment I played where like they show like the benefits of telling the truth versus, or, or playing honestly versus cheating.
0: I mean, and uh, just stuff like the Prisoner's Dilemma is what that reminds me of. Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. But I mean, basically... It's basically um, game theory. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I, there's this one, there's this other uh, um, psych experiment that I've been thinking about recently in a completely different context, but it was this idea that if you put people in a room together with... You know experimenter cohorts who are kind of in on it and you you like let smoke come in under the door the 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 subject will like look to, to, to their left look to their right see that neither of the other people are moving and then be like well i guess it's fine and just stay there as the room fills with smoke um and oh, so, so the idea the idea is like common knowledge is is important and that's what a fire alarm creates it's not that a fire alarm lets you know there's a fire because the smoke lets you know there's a fire Fire alarm creates common knowledge of the fact that there's a fire so that you don't feel embarrassed by getting up and going out the door. Um, You know what
1: that reminds me of? This is a complete tangent. That's fine. When I was when I first got my driver's license and I was driving, I was one of the people that like was self-conscious about my wiper speed on my windshield wipers when it started raining. Uh And I was a person like, well, I don't want to put my wipers on too fast Uh unless I look around and see if the other cars are on the highest speed, too. And it's like, it doesn't make any logical sense. It's stupid. But like, that's what that reminds me of. That Like, you don't want to be the one that's singled out for, for like reacting to a thing that you probably should be reacting to. Yeah.
0: It's the natural conformity reflex of of humans. And it makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it it, it is an amusing tangent that makes perfect sense here. Because the thing is, you would be rightly afraid of violating this norm if it were a norm that was in place. But once it starts to erode... Then the game theory changes and now it's to your advantage to help erode it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, Man, it's that, that, that segued pretty beautifully into an interesting conversation that ended up relating. We, yeah. we don't always do that. Yeah. No, that Good was, job, us.
0: That was a Hail Mary right there.
1: <laughs> All right. I think this is the last one we got this week. I think it's up to you.
0: Okay. Paradox says a lot of the CR mentality was propped up by the idea of greater threats than the small scale crimes committed by city villains. With the inbringers inert, the Slaughterhouse Nine mostly gone, Scion defeated, Nilbog pacified, there's currently a lack of large scale threats. Combine this with the general anti Cape sentiment among civilians, and cops and robbers probably can't exist. This could lead to trouble the first time a real threat does appear. The villains aren't benefiting from a system that allows them to operate relatively safely. So why should they help out?
1: Then that I think that ties into what you we were talking about earlier, right? That the, the, the whole idea of this equilibrium was predicated on the existence of a greater th- threat than the conflict between these two sides. And you take that threat out of there and the conflict between the two sides is the only thing, is the only game Then it's going to escalate beyond cops and robbers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's Yep. I don't have anything to add. I think that just <laughs> neatly capped off that discussion. Um, yeah. Great stuff guys as usual. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it. I don't think yeah. we have anything
1: else this week on the thread. Cool. Cause that was such a great conversation. I am I, every, every week, Matt, I worry about the question. I will this start a discussion or not. And then it does. And every week I'm impressed yeah. by all your responses. So if we didn't get you this week or, or we lumped you in someone else's, sorry about that. But um, we, we are reading them all and we do like them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Really do guys. Thanks. All right, moving on into the chapters. We begin with 5.D, the fourth interlude from Rain, and finally, it's Rain's Night.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I fully realized just how much I had been waiting for this chapter until it came out um, the day that we hadn't recorded last week's episode yet. So we recorded on Tuesday last week, and the chapter was out, and I knew it was the Rain interlude, but I knew I couldn't read it, and I was dying, and like the first thing I did Wednesday when the episode was released was, was to get into the chapter. Um, this, this has been quite a build up. I think we, we, we slowly one by one covered everyone else's dreams. And it was finally this. And, and I love, I love this, the opening line, the the tone setting line of this chapter is it was, it's my night, no control over what happens, no control over what happens. It's, it's really interesting because I think it's easy to write off these experiences as dreams. We've been calling them dreams. They kind of call them dreams, but they're more like they're not necessarily dreams like you're, you're not it's its not dreamlike and hazy. It's like you're reliving this moment, but you don't have control over it. You're powerless to change anything as you're watching it.
0: Yeah, it, it, the text explicitly says that it's it's like all of the recall, but none of the psychological components. So he's actually right. watching all of this and not feeling anything like what he felt at the time. He's, he's suffering everything about it. Even the, even the beginning that we're about to get into is just suffering.
1: Yeah. Which, which I think ties into, you know, once, once, once we see what he did play out, the fact that it's not the psychological recall, the fact that you can't feel the way rain felt in that moment ends up being very important to the perception by the rest of the cluster about what he was doing and what was happening to him and what went on with him. That ends up being really, really important to this whole thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we go into the dream, and Rain is at one of those night fires that the fallen youngsters hold. Jay presses a jug of disgusting moonshine on him, and he drinks painfully.
1: And I love I love that we started at the fire because the story has taken the time a a few times to point out the importance of these campfires as a place where the teen members of the Fallen come to hang out. It's part of their ritual. It's part of the indoctrination. And here Rain is. We've never seen him at one of these because he was kind of ostracized from the group. And now here in this dream, he's part of it. And it, it serves to, like, remind us immediately that that Rain is is part of this group. He's, he's in, he's indoctrinated. He is not on the outside. He's, he's not perfect either. We, we go into that a little bit, but, um, but he is, he is a fallen, but we also, I think, see, and this is where I start to, to stretch things a little bit, Matt, we see that he's not like, while he wants this, while he fully believes in this stuff, he's having trouble fitting. And I think the way, the way the book does this, and the thing I'm going to draw draw attention to is a snot. All right. Rain snot. um, Because we see in the opening moments of this chapter, Rain drinks the moonshine and has this visceral, disgusted reaction to it. It causes him to cough and choke and, and gets in his nose and the snot comes pouring out its nose. So we open this dream, this dream, on Rain in a place of indoctrination. He's speaking the words. He's drinking the moonshine, drinking the, uh, the Kool-Aid, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't go down smoothly. Some of it, he coughs it up. Some of it pours out of his nose in this disgusting mucusy discharge thing. His body is like literally rejecting it. And I think rain's reaction to that is also important because he, he pulls out a handkerchief, he wipes it off and he throws it into the fire. He burns it. He burns any physical trace of this rejection in a fire. And that's some great imagery that I just love.
0: Yeah, he he tries to destroy the the sign of his disloyalty. Right. That's that's great. Exactly. So Jay emphasizes to him that tomorrow he's going to be a soldier, and Rain responds with some boilerplate fallen rhetoric about how they're right about everything, and it's all God's will, um, which you would expect someone in that position to say, but the text clarifies the reign of the past as he spoke the words believed. So so Rain is a true believer here.
1: Yeah, and I love... I love the complicated nature of this because rain does absolutely believe everything he said he, he did and he wanted it. He wanted it so bad, but as we saw above, it's, it's, it's like something he wants that he's, it's just not fitting, right? It's just, he's not, he's not being the good soldier, being the good fallen that he really, really wants to be. And I love that you get little hints of that throughout this chapter, like little moments that make you understand that he wants this so bad, but it's almost like he wants it because he, he has no other choice. He has to want it like that's that's his only choice. And and the first of these is like this little tiny moment that's just simply illustrated as as Jay handing him the jug of moonshine and Rain thinks to himself, no choice. Rain took the jug. And if we take the moonshine as 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 symbolism of that indoctrination that we talked about earlier, then then it means not only is he drinking the Kool-Aid, it basically means that someone is standing over him, pouring it down his throat. And he doesn't have a choice.
0: Yeah, I I love what you just said about, um, like, it makes him feel like he has a choice. And so he he has to decide to want it, which perfectly reflects something that happens at the end of this chapter where someone else decides to want something. Um, Yeah,
1: I'm glad you picked up on that. That's where I was going. Yes,
0: very, very subtle, but it's priming you on these ideas of how this cult operates Uh, It's 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 really great. Yeah. Yeah. So Rain's hair has only started to grow out back at this point in the past. So it seems that uh, whatever whatever went down has happened recently.
1: Yeah. And it, it means that we're post Mama Mathers being disappointed in him. Right. Which 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 sets him into a place where. The pressure is on like he is he he wants this so bad he needs it. He's he's maybe convinced himself that he he wants this more than anything in the world, but he keeps screwing up and he's not being good at it. And, and that that builds to a mounting pressure that is very important to the decision he makes or, or rather the decision he avoids when it comes to uh, the events leading up to his trigger.
0: Yeah, so he gradually gets drunk, uh, keeping an eye on Aaron but it's Delilah who sits next to him and gives him a friendly hand job. She encourages him to talk about terrible violent things as she does this. Allie comes by and interrupts them.
1: Ah yes, the old fireside under blanket HJ with torture, murder, dirty talk being awkwardly interrupted by your cousin trick. It's just really just to write a passage. Like everyone I mean who who hasn't gone yeah. through
0: that? Yeah, reminded me of uh well, okay. So
1: I'm <laughs> 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 Wait, hold on. I'm really curious now. Where are you going?
0: I mean, you know, just, you know, everyone's first old fireside end of like an H.J. with torture, murder, dirty talk being awkwardly interrupted by your cousin event. Uh, yes, of course. Yeah. So the text emphasizes that Rain is just watching all this with his current mindset, embarrassed about it, embarrassed about the fact that Aaron might be noticing and dreading what is coming next.
1: Yeah, this is. I think this is the best. The best part of the, of the chapter for me, because we we build ourselves to have two distinct rains here. The the reign of the past and the reign of the present. And we we stylistically demonstrate that difference with the italic- italicized thoughts of present rain. Like every so often, there's rain in the present, observing this thing and thinking stuff. And that rain kind of offers us justifications and explanations for things. And it's it's very important i think that we the reader can can see those justifications see those explanations and and to a certain extent they're true uh, he didn't have a choice this but it's also something that the other people in his cluster don't get to see they don't get to see those justifications they don't get to see those um the the, the details behind it and I, I like that it's done stylistically like italicized like structurally that i think draws more attention to them it it, it emphasizes those words as being more important, and i I love it, I love it so much. I love this this whole setup. it's like it's like kind of like you know you you have to like watch old home movies of when you were a teenager Matt, and it's really embarrassing, and you can't change it because it's just a movie, but you have to relive it. yeah, only you know, um with more murder and and homophobia and yeah awkward age days and, and stuff
0: several times a month over and over. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is interesting to watch his sort of processing of it. Like he's been faced with this same thing over and over and over again. So by now, like his, his not justifications, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but like his narrative for like, I was forced to do this. This isn't who I am anymore, etc. That that is like finally honed at this point, yeah. um, To the point where this is still causing him suffering because like it is him that he's watching doing all this, yeah. And and he does know that he did these things, but like I think that this this however long it's been a a year or whatever has been a process of him like pushing away the person that did that did these things until he is almost dissociated from it. Not quite though because it still still wears on him terribly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think your justification has a a negative context that I don't think I meant in that case. Yeah. Uh, He he has explanations.
0: Yeah. It's I I think the way you were using it was fine. I I was I was more like, what what is what is the name for what he's doing here? And I think I think it is like he's he's crafting a narrative that allows him to look at himself in the mirror. So, yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. So. Right. So Seer now singles out Rain for a special job. And this is as they're approaching uh, the mall that they're going to... Yeah, it's the next morning now, yeah. Right, the next morning they're going to do do their terrorism. Seer singles out Rain for a special job, and Rain thinks about Seer and how Seer's always had it out for him, um, as long as he's known Seer. And I feel like this chapter actually emphasizes a lot of stuff about Rain's family past. Like it mentions that he knows he's related to people, but he doesn't actually know exactly how. Like, like he suspects he's related to his aunt and uncle, but he knows they're probably not actually his aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. He, he knows Seer dislikes him because of some old grudge, but um, we're not sure like what that had to do with exactly. So, it, I don't know. I have, I have. I have vague predictions about what this is all going to look like.
1: Look at Matt Freeman getting into the predictions game. Yeah. What, what are they?
0: It's it's quite a, it's quite a s- steep uh, uh, hill to climb to, to predict in the same <laughs> league as you, Scott. I mean, basically I just like, I had this guess basically that one of Rain's parents was a Cape and was killed in, you know, in, in action. And so that's, that would sort of explain why he mama had her eye on him at all. And maybe, you know, it also could potentially explain why Seer doesn't like him is like his, his, you know, mom or dad was either a rival or someone who spurned Cyr. Um I, 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 I yeah. can easily see myself being wrong about these though. That's, that's the thing is like, I can see other things like maybe his mom just like went with some other guy and Seer wanted her and then, they died and and seer resents them so like that's the thing is the neither of those is necessarily a prediction it's more like i can see different ways this could go so
1: yeah i like that though Uh, i'm not sure how that would line up to rain's arc just yet but that doesn't mean it's wrong it just means that that's not been uh revealed to us quite yet
0: that's the thing. I'm not using the patented Scott Daly method of like extrapolating <laughs> thematically. It's more like I have I have I have some puzzle pieces in front of me, and I've tried them in a couple configurations, and they look plausible. But plausible isn't the same thing as like thematically resonant. So we'll we'll move on, and and we'll remember it. Yeah. we won't forget this. I'll th- I'll think about I'll think about this and whether I actually want to make it a prediction. So Seer takes him back around the building and then he uses his power, revealing himself to be a duplicator with a twist. He snatches a young woman who was taking her smoke break and tortures her. He orders Rain to spit on her and Rain doesn't hesitate.
1: Yeah, so I had a couple thoughts that jumped into my brain when I when I really studied this this spit take take um <laughs> I think the first thing is is you kind of connect back to the the mucus at the start of the chapter, like that that mucus made thick by moonshine. It's like the the idea that you're you're choking down the 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 Kool Aid of the fallen, and then uh, you keep it bit down, and then you use it when you need to. You mm-hmm. kind of you literally weaponize it and and spit it back into someone's face. Um, that's the first thing that jumped into my mind, and I kind of like I like that that imagery. Um, but I think the big one to me, Matt, was jumping back to Glowworm to the last chapter of the prequel where um, Madison tells Victoria a story of when she spit on Taylor uh-huh. and she spit right on Taylor's face. And and I went and, and went back and read that part because I just wanted to see what it said. And, and there's parts of it that jumped out at me here. It's this is this is Madison. Like Victoria says, fucking why? Which actually, now that I think of it. Victoria saying, fucking why, is becoming a trend because she yeah. said the same thing to the advance guard. Um, yeah. But uh, Madison says, I don't know. I never really stopped to think about it. My friend was a model and my other friend was a top athlete. Maybe I wanted to keep up. I told myself it was prank tier stuff, but at the same time. And. I think the connection to that is 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 pretty apparent when you go back and read that because this idea that I never really stopped to think about it. My friend was a model and my other friend was a top ath- athlete. Maybe I wanted to keep up. I think that's kind of rain here. He he believes, he's a true believer, but like I said it's it's because he he wills himself to believe because he doesn't have a choice. Um and and we've seen him he has failed, he's been punished, his he's growing out his hair due to directions from Mama Mathers and and in his desperation to keep up with everyone around him, he's ordered to spit on someone and he doesn't hesitate. He just does it. He just does it because he doesn't have a choice. And I and then we see present day Rain jump in to explain why, right? That's the next thing that happens.
0: Right. And and we're not sure if that's. It, we're not sure if he's right or not, because his, his justification, he says, he says, if I if I had hesitated even a fraction of a second, he would have destroyed me. And said he was justified in doing it, and it's like okay, maybe that's true in retrospect, but you do have to doubt if that's why he, if that was what was motivating him in the moment. And, and right. even th- there's there's a moment later where he says, um, you know, he, he says something along the lines of, I'm, "I'm disappointed. I wanted to do more than this," and and rain is rain is like, is that true? Had he and or and it puts you in that position of being like i i don't know rain yeah (laughs) Uh, it's it's clear that he doesn't even like really remember whether he was like um so all in that he really wanted to be a a bigger part of things so that he could could gain some social standing or whether he was just motivated by fear i think the answer is actually yes both (laughs) uh, because that's how cults work
1: yeah yeah and you're absolutely right that 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 justification that if i hesitated even a fraction of a second that is italicized so we Mm -hmm. are hearing future or present whatever rain's thoughts this is not past rain thinking this we don't know what past rain was thinking we don't we're not we're not party to that only through rain's memories which seem incomplete like he like just like you said he doesn't remember if if he's pretty sure that he was fully in on this stuff but he doesn't remember um, and I think that's important.
0: Yeah, he's been rewriting this book every every five days uh, until right. until it can sit right with him. And uh, yeah, I'm not blaming I, him for doing this. By the way, like this is no, this is almost what all. you would have to do to to, to to just not hate yourself completely. Yeah, so. yeah.
1: But you keep going back to this is the second time we've gone back to um, Yamada's lecture to Victoria about how if you keep going over memories, old memories, over and over again. Um, you kind of tend to distort them a bit. And this is a little different because he's literally getting to see the memory, but he he doesn't see all of it. He doesn't see what he was thinking at the time. So that is what he can distort.
0: Yeah, he's he's distorting it into like, oh, yeah, I'm a victim here. And, and yeah. we, we can't even actually know the truth of this anymore. Yeah. So then Seer traps the young woman against the inside of the door and then chains the door shut from the outside, leaving it unlocked. Then there's an explosion on the inside and a stampede of people trying to escape. Rain is tormented as as the pleas of help reach him, and he begins to laugh hysterically. Seer finally appears and castigates him for letting the people die, and then he tears the door open.
1: Yeah, this is so. This is it. And if I'm being honest, the first time I read this, I completely missed the fact that the padlock was not locked, and I was trying to figure out why the hell Seer like. Locked a padlock and then left him and um, and then came back later and was like, wait, why didn't you unlock the thing? It's like, well, because you didn't leave me a key. Yeah. I was like, what the hell, Seer? But then I reread it and realized that, yes, it very specifically says he did not lock the padlock. um, So Rain could have taken this chain off at any time. Yeah. And this is rough. and And, and yeah, we basically see him snap here. And I think the most interesting thing to me is that. It is not the the being torn on making the decision that causes him to trigger. It's not the decision between do I release the people or do I stand there and do nothing that That choice right there is not the thing that drove him to trigger um that's it, not that indecision. He sits there wondering what the right thing to do is he's torn he's undecided, and he kind of just snaps, but he decides right he doesn't touch it he backs away and he kind of goes a little crazy for a bit um but he basically makes the decision that that the price of maybe pissing off the fallen that maybe um losing the chance to be at the, the soldier is these these deaths these people is a price he's willing to pay and but that isn't what caused him to trigger what caused him to trigger is is seer appears yells at him kicks him gives him a look that says I'm you suck and abandons him to this crowd of angry people bearing down on him. And that that is the moment that he triggers, like this realization that he sacrificed other people's lives for his happiness, for for what he wanted. And that was still the wrong thing to do. And he's still screwed. And like, I think that kind of just that. Crazed, like mind whammy is what finally just broke him.
0: Yeah, I saw some very interesting discussion as to whether Seer was trying to throw him under the bus or not, you know, basically, yeah. basically did Seer, did Seer actually think that he had given some kind of signal that Rain didn't see, <laughs> um, you know, d- did, did Rain legitimately miss a signal or or, or is, did Seer make a mistake and he's trying to cover his ass or did Seer completely plan this and intentionally withhold the signal just so that Rain would look really bad, uh, and and then show up and act like it was all Rain's fault? In either case, it it, it kind of it, it's it's there's some very interesting kind of ambiguity as to how much of this is Seer turning the screws on Rain just to mess with him, and how much of it is just Rain's you know executive decision to do what he did. And I don't have the answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't either. And because you're absolutely right that like Seer specifically sits him down and says, if you let any of these people go, you will not become a soldier. Yeah. But he doesn't like, he doesn't say, okay, keep him in there for five minutes and then let him out, but keep them all here. Like let him out of the door, but keep them in the area. He just says, if you let them go, you will have failed us. Yeah. And it's not take the chain off, buddy. It's not wait for me to come back. It's just we're going to do this thing. We're going to scare him real bad. Don't let him go. And that's literally what he did. He didn't let him go. And so I, I, I don't know either. I think there is kind of a tendency to to push the blame onto Seer because we like rain. Yeah. And we we want we want we feel sorry for him and we don't want him. We want him to be a victim. And uh, he absolutely is to a certain extent that he's been brainwashed by this terrible cult. But um, I think it is important that he he makes the decision here and. He's laughing. <laughs> I think that's very important. And, yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's a perception of that, right? Like it, this gets into into what everyone else was seeing when they watched this stuff, why they perceived it the way they did because he's laughing here.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and, and just to kind of wrap, wrap all that up, like, like you pointed out, I, I think very importantly that he doesn't trigger as he's tormented, you know, standing in front of the locked door. Like I, I honestly thought that, that his power was going to be blades to sever the chain so that he could have the chance to sever the chain and then fail to do so. Right. No. Right. the The trigger occurs after the doors are open, and, and and like you said, after all these people are are surrounding him, and it's just it really changes the context of kind of what I thought the meaning of his trigger was. So
1: yeah, it makes him it makes it a lot less sympathetic to him, right? That like the thing that broke him was not failing to save people. The thing that broke him was. Failing the fallen, and then having to live with the immediate consequence as the people surrounded him, angry, yeah. all looking down. It's it's the rejection from people that caused him to trigger, not the the act of killing people.
0: Yeah, I, it, probably. You know. It, it, yeah, it I could, mean, we're we're assuming here. Yeah, yeah. it could. You know, the, the, the it could even just be like the mental stress, just kind of crescendo there, and you know. But but yeah, I th- that I think, is possible. I think there's, I think there's definitely something to read into all of that in the yeah I mean it, of it. It,
1: it feels deliberate, right? Like if you were trying like like you said, I think you and I were not the only ones that thought it was trying to get the chain off and to specifically separate the trigger event from the removal of the chain. it feels like a, a deliberate attempt to separate what caused his trigger from that choice. yeah, and I, so that feels deliberate to me.
0: yeah, I think we'll, we'll get to a little bit more trigger talk in a second so let's let's move on into you know it it says that the the trigger the trigger hits him in the dream and then he wakes up in you know or rather he is now in the next part of the dream which is the the pentagon um he reaches for his chair but it's missing when he emerges the room the all, all four of the visible rooms actually are a complete mess they've invited some the, the the other cluster mates apparently have invited some other cape old one tooth is all we know what to call her uh, to try to help in the dream world and it appears that the shards have destroyed this intruder.
1: Yeah, Pentagon doesn't like people. Yep. Um, I loved how this was set up, Matt, because we've been hitting this beat over and over again. Every time he hits it, goes into that dream, the chair. It's always there. It's always in the same spot, again and again and again. Establish, reinforce. We, I think I think it did it three times here because each each time he was in the the Pentagon, this is the fourth time we've seen him in there. So the chair is always there. The chair is always there. The chair is always there. The chair is gone. Yeah. Something's different. What is happening? And I think that immediately like shocks you into a focus mode. where are like, what's going on? What is what has happened? Yeah. Why is this different?
0: Right. But of course. It doesn't really cost him anything right now. All we learn no. is that the the, the powers re- retaliate against intruders. Yeah. So s- seeing that this has happened, Rain immediately tries to summon Mama Mathers <laughs> into the room so that she can be killed too, uh, but it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, a completely sensible move <laughs> that uh, almost seems to have been put in here by Wildbo specifically to head off any future topic threads. They're just like... What if Mama Mathers co- came into the Pentagon? <laughs> like, let's just let's just head that off at the pass and say, nope, doesn't work. Moving
0: on. Yeah, I mean it, it's clever and it's also telling us to like where his mental state is that he just immediately goes there. Like, oh yeah, maybe I can get her. Yeah. No. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So Rain asks the cluster mates for help, which is which is shocking to to us in that moment. Yeah. Uh, the others aren't very receptive though. He tries to explain that the fallen use powers on people to compel them. Uh, still, no one's listening. And then here comes a little bit more trigger talk. He says, Why do you think my share of the powers breaks things apart? They're thematically tied into who we are. And my share is to shatter things because I was fucking shattered right then. And then Cradle argues back, It's a power to destroy because you destroy things. Do you know how I know? Because you fucking told us. Day one. You, me, him, her in this room. You laughed. You told us we deserved it. You threatened us. Uh, so I think this pair of quotes shows us how much rain must have changed because he, uh, the guy who we actually saw in that trigger vision was someone who lashed out defensively, laughed at them, um, probably was a horrible person all the way to now philosophizing about the thematic meaning of the powers. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm certain he's right in his interpretation here, but at least he's you know thinking about it in these terms.
1: Yeah, I'm not certain he's right either, and I think either of these explanations could make sense, right? Yeah. I think this goes to show us that the change to Rain's personality was not immediate, right? Like, this, it seems to have been a gradual change over time. And we've been talking about this idea a few times about, um, was this personality train change just caused by, like, a, a shard-based personality bleed where it just took person X's personality and stuck it in person Y and now you're, you're a different person now. Um, and if that was the case, you would think that the the change would have been a little more abrupt. It would not have been so slow to happen because in the first few days he's acting very much like same old Rain. Uh-huh. Um, so, so it appears that this cha- behavior, this change in his behavior was a learned behavior, um, which means that that he as he got to see from these other people's perspectives it changed him slowly um which kind of means that that's the same thing is true for the other three that they just that he just they just didn't take all his hate automatically that this was this was something that built up over time um having to be subjected to these visions over and over again
0: yeah no i, I think that's i think that's exactly right they're they're basically you know, th- I think the best way to to learn to hate someone is to be constantly reminded of how they've wronged you. Yeah. Um. And in contrast, the and perhaps this is less, you know, orthodox, but perhaps a good way to learn to forgive yourself is to be confronted so painfully with the thing you did wrong over and over again that you either have to either go crazy or reject that part of yourself so thoroughly that you don't see it as yourself anymore so they've been sort of indoctrinated into hating him, and he's been indoctrinated into wanting to get as far away from that as possible. And yeah, yeah, that kind of explains everything that's happened to them without even having to resort to a personality bleed at all. Like, like he, the personality bleed could be a thing, but I would actually think it was cool if it wasn't a thing. It was just they're being brainwashed to use a, a theme of Rain's story. They're being brainwashed into a whole new mindset just by being shown these things over and over again.
1: I like that a lot, and I agree that it is a lot more thematically interesting than just the shard did it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right that that seeing all this 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 moment, I think we finally understand why they hate him so much. Because if you look back on on this dream, the laughter, the fact that he got a hand job the night before he ruined their lives, the the fact that Rain's life on the surface seems to be pretty blessed. Like we don't, we don't, we, these are just like the rest of the people don't see those italicized thought moments of present rain. They don't see the moments when he says, no, I didn't have a choice. I had to do this. There was no choice. Like the, 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 these dreams don't let the rest of his cluster see mama Mathers. They don't let the rest of this cluster see the indoctrination that the fact that they don't, have that choice everything we know about the fallen we the reader uh, know of the fallen who they are what they do it's all left out of this dream it's not included as part of this event they're they're almost like the fallen are designed that's a cult's work to force you not to think about your actions to force you to be so indoctrinated that you don't question these things like that's literally what mama Mathers does right like if you question those if you doubt me if you doubt this i will appear before you to reinforce it so Rain doesn't ever think about this stuff. We don't ever see him hesitate. Nothing in the dream ever shows if he was in conflict or feeling conflicted about this at all. And then it's the laughing. So, of course, they hate him. Of course, they don't believe him. This is all they get to see. This is all they know of him. Yeah. They don't know the person he is now, and they can't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think Rain originally said something about how, like... The, when he was first explaining the dreams, he said that the the dreams are selective; they they show things selectively. And um I think maybe even more important than showing things selectively is it it isn't showing what's happening in his head. So yeah, like you said, if you look, yeah, I I bet if you look at any cult, really, like if you just shown a camera in there. Everyone would just seem like, oh, yeah, they're, they're all just sheep. They're all just complying and they're all so weak and and they're all complicit and they and they basically deserve it because of how complicit they're being. And that's pretty unfair, really, to the to, to like what those people are probably going through and the sorts of social pressure dynamics that are going on and and, and whatever is actually in their heads.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. So after, you know, his cluster mates don't listen to him at all, he, the dream ends, he wakes up on the floor of his shop with a hand caressing his scalp, which we expect and perhaps hope is Aaron's, uh, but it's mom's.
1: Yeah. And that's just the most terrifying thing ever. Like it's literally out of the frying pan and into the creepy ghost mom right. head.
0: And, scalp and, touch. I, I don't remember if, if he could sense her touch before or not, but if, if not, then if we didn't know that before. Then it's creepy to know that he can sense her touch, and it makes you wonder if she can harm him. Actually,
1: yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think I think she can't, but I don't know why. I say that exactly, so <laughs> we'll move on and figure that out next week, I guess. Uh huh. So Aaron has left him a note, uh, telling him she'll you know see him later and calling him Bud.
1: Ooh, Rain just got Bud zoned. Ooh, ouch! It's funny how much this one little word ends up ends up mattering during the course of the rest of this chapter because this this word is is put there specifically to delineate the Aaron we see this morning from the Aaron we're going to see at the end of this chapter that that we've gone from she likes you as a friend buddy to what we are forced to witness near the end of this thing and, and that that feels like we're, we're you like the purpose behind this word is very intentional and and rain just in the moment is like oh bummer but yeah. it, it ends up mattering so much
0: more I, I agree i think this does mean a lot because it it really gives the lie to what she says later where, right. where later she's like yeah oh yeah for a few days you know, for a few days I've been I've I've been uh, you know uh, uh, thinking along these lines, and it's like uh huh exactly. yeah. This morning you wrote that you wrote Bud, so yeah, um, yeah. So there's an urge that he feels to breathe in the smell of her sweatshirt that he had used as a pillow, but he doesn't because Mama would see, and he thinks to himself he might have wanted and done the same connection if it was a boy, if it was Byron or Tristan, not because he was that way, but he didn't have much.
1: God, that's just fucking heartbreaking, Matt.
0: Yeah, just some Jesus. some kind of human connection is what yeah. he is just desperate for.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important too. Setting up how desperate he is for this um, makes is important when we see what his decision is near the end of this thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Aaron now shows up bringing breakfast and lunch in a bunch of lunch boxes. She tries to joke with him, but he can't conceive of joking around right now. And he tells her he needs to go into town because he's been ordered to by mama. And she offers to drive him.
1: Yeah. And once again, she kind of uses interesting vocabulary on him when she realizes that her joking like really made him uncomfortable. She's like, oh, honey, I'm sorry. And like, I think you could you could maybe try to twist this into it being like a romantic esque honey. Like I call my wife honey every so often, but I think if you look at it in context, the way she says it, it's not like a, a pet name. It's like it's like almost unintentionally patronizing. It's yeah. like, oh, honey, you know. And yeah. so I think this is another another beat to support the fact that rain that that Aaron in this moment is not looking at rain as a romantic interest. That she's just not looking at him this way right now.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's a vaguely emasculating. Oh, honey. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't know how much to make of this, but she refers to the pancakes as being made properly, which (laughs) is a phrase that Rain's aunt also used referring to hash browns, hash browns made properly. Uh, and I was just wondering if that means anything beyond like, oh, people who live in rural settings have firm ideas about making things properly means making them from scratch, um, or, or. Anytime there's a repeated phrase, I try to be like, "Is there something happening here?" What's yeah, man.
1: That stories are patterns. That's what they are. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it is partially that. I think it's also partially like a way to resist and separate yourself from things done elsewhere. Like the the, the here in the fallen, we do this stuff properly. Mm-hmm. If you go elsewhere, you're going to get the improper kind. It's 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 a way to segment their community from everyone else. Here, it's proper. That,
0: OK, that, I'm glad you said that because that kind of made something click because because what I guess what was sticking in my mind about this is the fact that Aaron used this language because it, it is not like it is not like a cosmopolitan way of speaking to say like, yes, these are pancakes done properly like that. Yeah, that, it, it's, it's an indication to me, a very subtle verbal indication that she's picking up the idioms of the people she's living with and, and becoming more like them.
1: I think that's a very, very good point. Yeah, it feels like that to me.
0: Cool. So as they drive, Aaron tells him a superficially pointless story about a secret signal language that she would use with her brother to convey if they felt weird about something. Rain clocks that she's proposing that they use this code to communicate whether Mama is watching them. The upshot is that Aaron can't act as a secret line of communication to the rest of the team because Mama is watching her too.
1: Yeah, I, I like this idea structurally in the story a lot, Matt. Uh, I think going forward, it basically allows the readers to know um, if Mama Mathers is there without the necessity of being in Rain's point of view. And there's a lot of clever ways that Wildbow could use this while in a Victoria chapter to pl- play a little bit of dramatic irony for us, the reader. And that's always fun. So I think this has a lot of fun implications going forward.
0: Yeah, right. I, I, I want to actually go back to last week because... Victoria's last week chapters were were th- this subsequent scene, right, so it'd yeah. be interesting to see if she notices him when they're having their big cape fight uh crossing his arms.
1: well, we'll get to it in a bit but yeah. i I did it Matt oh, did I did you? it all right well i, I can't it.
0: wait to can't wait to see the results of this investigation <laughs> um so yeah, so we now pick up from the point in the conversation with tattletale that uh that they were watching the um, Kinsey cam and imp imps into the frame and <laughs> Kinsey complains that her cameras are freaking out and Victoria tells us that imp's power now degrades film over time which is either a new development or perhaps people just hadn't noticed that it did that before
1: yeah I mean it's possible that it's it's the latter but I narratively I think this serves a shorthand for hey everyone imp has gotten stronger um, and I think that's important because I think it, it it's a convenient way to kind of explain any future Imp v. Kenzie shenanigans that are going to happen in the future because Kenzie seems like the perfect counter to her, but we're now establishing here now that that is not necessarily true.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's a good point. Victoria gives the team a Parahumans 101 lesson on the th- on the theme that powers can become stronger over time due to increasing familiarity.
1: Yes, I'm sure this won't matter at all yeah. in any future moment in the story.
0: No, we're, we're certainly not setting anything up at all. <laughs> Rain is practically shaking with restrained emotion here, just watching all this. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 again, crossing his arms, which, you know, no one notices what's going on. Yeah,
1: he he even says that Aaron's not here anymore, but he just is doing it out of habit now. Yeah,
0: so, so Scott did... Did Rain do that last week?
1: He did not do it last week. Um, Last week's there was a lot of action going on, and we really didn't see a lot of Rain. But Chapter 5.2, after Rain leaves the room to get some fresh air, um, because he gets frustrated and leaves, and he comes back in just as the advanced guard arrive, um, he walks back in the room, and it says, Rain entered the room. He approached the desk with his arms folded, looking wary. And I think from that, we can assume that, yes, From this moment on, Mama Mathers is there basically the entire time. She witnesses basically the entire fight, um, all their planning, everything that's going on. She has witnessed it. We can we can make that assumption.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thanks for thanks for checking that out. Yeah. Yeah. So then, of course, Rain, he's, you know, watching all this, watching the undersiders, thinking and he thinks to himself, but Rain knew he'd have to kill Mama. He'd have to kill Snag. He'd have to kill Love Lost. He'd have to kill Cradle.
1: Yep. Oh, boy. Yeah. So that's where, that's where we are now. And the, the, this is the really tragic moment of this because, like, Rain is a murderer. Rain has killed people. And Rain has struggled this past year to change away from being that person. And now the situation he's in has forced him into a place where he feels like he has to fall back into being a, 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 a different version of that same person, a person who kills people.
0: Yeah, um, I, I love the language of this. I mean, it's it's the same language, but it's it's repeated four times. He'd yeah. have to kill Mama. Uh, it, it it doesn't you know it, it doesn't chain together the names with commas or anything like that. It it uh yeah it really makes you feel the weight of each of these people, each of oh, these yeah. targets, each of these enemies who yeah. wants you know who, who who basically all of them are his enemies. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I I loved it. I loved it.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right because like you could very easily write this as he'd have to kill mama. He'd have to kill his cluster and then you could just be done with it. But no, this this is intentionally pulling pulling out each person. This is personalizing each person. This is giving weight to each life. And I think that does establish that this is not an easy decision for him. This is not something he takes lightly. Um, This is something that he feels like he has to do now.
0: Yeah, I agree. So we listen to the Undersiders talk amongst themselves. Rachel doesn't want to go inside. Imp pokes fun at her. Tattletail concedes. The Toys are incredulous that the Undersiders are actually a successful cape team.
1: This is just fun because we're getting to see our Undersiders interact again. And it makes me happy. Um, Of course, the thing that the Misfit Toys don't know is that the Undersiders are missing a pretty important element to the whole uh, being a successful cape team in Taylor. Um, they don't. They don't have that person anymore. So, yeah, they didn't take over a whole city without Taylor.
0: Yeah, I, I just I love how consistent all this is, though. Like, like it is kind of r- ridiculous that Rachel doesn't want to go inside, but yeah, Tattletale doesn't push her because Tattletale doesn't push her sister figures. You know, yeah, um, yeah, and 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 uh, Foyle is like mildly passive aggressive about everything, but <laughs> just kind of lets it go. So, yeah, it's. It's the, these people we know and love.
1: I do find it interesting that that the, that Victoria specifies that Flashet Foyle um joined the dark side when she went with Parian. Our hero is still in the mode of if uh, trying to make everything black and white, to make it good and evil, bad guy, good guy. Um when when we the reader know because we've seen we saw the the weight of the choice that Foyle made and the the relationship she has with Parian that it is not that, that simple. She did not just say, okay, I'm going to be a bad guy now. I'm going to go to the dark side. force choke.
0: <laughs> That's not how it works in Worm. <laughs> no, you no. Don't, you, you don't get more powers when you become villain? No, not, no. no,
1: you don't get 20 dark side points no, and get, get new dark side abilities. Sorry.
0: Uh, yeah, so Sveta mentions that one fun time that she ran into Taylor in the bowels of Cauldron at the end of the world.
1: Yeah. And that makes me wonder if if we're going to get to see the scene when she explains that to everyone else. Well, I went down. And it's like, yeah. And then the bug girl threw me at someone.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then I got into a fist fight with Scion. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, like it's funny that, you know, we're we're teased on that moment, but we don't go into it because. Yeah, we kind of we kind of want to and we kind of don't want to, you know,
1: it, it's not necessary. I agree. Like if you're reading this book, you know what happened. Um, it yeah. it would be fun and servicey to get to to see the story told, but it doesn't need to happen.
0: It's need to be reminded that that happened, but yeah, I agree. We yeah. don't need to go into it t- too yeah. much. Yeah, so Tattletale finds some privacy apparently to make a phone call, but she ends up pressing some kind of tinker device and then addressing the team directly by name mostly. She warns them to run, stay out of the way, don't get involved. She warns Rain specifically to run and probably stay away from anybody he cares about so they don't become collateral damage. She closes out by emphasizing that this is the third time she's been quote-unquote gentle with Victoria and her people. Victoria thinks this is all bullshit, of course, but I think we know Tats well enough to say that she's trying to make up for a debt that she owes and this is genuine.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting discussion to have, Matt, because there is there is probably an argument to how much of this is is tattletale bullshit versus how much of this is sincere. Um, Victoria clearly has her opinion um, and and, and it, it, she is attempting to annoy them here. Like she calls Victoria G.H., yeah. which is specifically trying to piss her off. I mean, she knows that that's a, a button to push for her. Um, but, yeah, I think you are right that. That while she is trying to be antagonistic, that's just kind of how she deals with people. I. Tattletail is not a, a like, an evil, maniacal person. Um, she's a very complicated person who has done bad things in the past, but probably genuinely, like, just wants them out of this whole thing.
0: Yeah. Right. I mean, she's basically, like, you know, specifically to Rain, she's like, look idiot get out of here (laughs) like like like, seriously seriously i've given you so many chances and so much warning that if they catch you it will not even be my fault anymore you know i mean i I, like that's that's kind of the under the undertone that i'm reading into into her approach here
1: and if she really wanted if she really didn't want to help them out she would have just told them where he was. Cause she even says the second, the second my check clears, I'm telling him right where you are, but I'm, I'm at least giving you this warning. And, and yes, I mean, I will always reserve the right to, to say that she could have some complex plan in her pocket about this whole thing that she's manipulating everyone simultaneously. But that's the, the tattletale that is manipulating 20 people at once. And that is the tattletale that she, she projects to the world. That's not the actual title tale that we saw when we were with her close up. She's very much just playing stuff by ear constantly. So,
0: right, right. Like her, her power is not really a, maybe people will disagree with me, but like her power is not a mastermind power. She's a normal person. As far as being a mastermind goes, her thinker power just lets her know more information. So she can, she can, and historically has, Screwed up complex plans just due to not being that great at planning. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, I bet um, we're gonna get some pushback on that, but yeah. I welcome it.
0: Yeah. So, um, so you know, these past few episodes, we've been tracking this weird, mysterious shit that's been going on with the with the misfit toys. Um, you know, Capricorn being reluctant to leave certain people alone in the HQ together, etc. And I, I just wanted to check in on this now that we have this this information about about Mama Mathers and say, is is this idea that Mama is watching and or that Capricorn suspects there is something mastery going on with Rain? Is is that is that what is that what Capricorn was worried about? Is there more to it than that, or is is that what it is?
1: Um, it's definitely part of it, but I genuinely think that there's more to it than that. I think the mystery of the misfit toys is a little more complex than just Mama Matters.
0: Yeah, I, I suspect you're right. I suspect you're right. Um, yeah. So there's a, a, interesting, interesting line here where um, okay, so so Rain, you know, he goes back into the fallen camp. He gets he gets on. The uh, you know one of the shuttle trucks that that are constantly going between the city and the fallen camp uh, because because uh, uh, Aaron has already gone back and we get we get a, a sentence where it says uh, Mama Mathers knew about the attack because she'd seen what the group had seen she'd called in help and and it's and it's I, I just wanted to I guess this is a weirdly meta thing to point out it's not the type of thing we typically point out but like I think that most people probably already got that by this point um but i think that <laughs> i think weldo knows his audience well enough to know that sometimes he needs to spell it out and i think that's what he's doing here uh, what do you what do you think about that
1: yeah i think you're probably right i mean i think a lot of writing is balancing what you reveal and when and how much how much to blatantly telegraph versus how much to um, like just hint at when yeah. you really need people to understand it. And that's a, that's a difficult balance to strike. And there are times when uh, there are, there are times th- throughout reading this book that I've seen like um, beats hit to such an obvious degree that I'm like, okay, I, I, I had gotten that. Um, but also at the same time, you and I are reading this at a level of detail so much Higher than the average reader, so I don't think it's necessarily fair to hold, um, hold it at my standard of yeah, no, I got the connection, um, because we're not we're like I read this like three times and I'm scribbling notes as I'm doing it and writing 30 pages of script analyzing it. So, um, I don't know. I I I agree that this line probably didn't need to be in there, but there's probably people that hadn't put that together. So well, I I don't know.
0: I like your point actually that sometimes in writing it's actually um perhaps even necessary to over determine something. Like yeah. like I think this is one reason I'm bad at predictions is that like if this line weren't in here, then even me who did already get this would have had like a little tiny bit of probability mass on the like did mama know about this due to some other source?
1: Yeah, you're doing the the eating chocolate thing. again. Yeah, I'm
0: doing the eating chocolate thing again, which I do about everything. So it does it does actually help to just be like, oh, it's because it's because she's watching through rain, which is what I thought. Yeah. Now I know that's it. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Thanks. Yeah, and, yeah, I, that actually makes sense to me because. There's there's leaving <laughs> there's such a thing as leaving mysteries that aren't supposed to be mysteries just because you haven't nailed it down. So, I yeah, yeah, right. And I it, also think yeah.
1: I don't think it's 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 safer to be overly explanatory than than under like than to to not to not make it as clear. So I, I'd rather the drum being hit really loudly than n- missing the drum beat at all.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. This, this isn't we don't usually talk about stuff like this. Uh, I, I just thought this was a, a good a good example to pull out. And I think um, it was worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So moving on, Mama has called in reinforcements in the fallen settlements, and it's now overflowing with Crowley's and others Rain doesn't recognize. And he thinks to himself, the fallen weren't outnumbered three to one anymore.
1: Yeah, so this little war just got a whole lot more serious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I put on my sunglasses. <laughs> it's not even a good one. That's just bad. <laughs>
0: It's it's a, it's about par for the course when it comes to that meme. That's true. So when he reaches his home, Mama addresses him, telling him he's being rewarded. She then frees him from her vigilance for the night, which is conveyed in an awesome visceral fashion as she sort of takes the form of, like, birds flapping in the distance, or, or at least the sound of them. He then goes into his house and is sent to his room by his aunt, and there he finds Aaron.
1: Oh, no. Oh,
0: no. So...
1: Let's get through this fast, please. Yes.
0: So as we probably get at this point, Aaron is to be Rain's reward. Not just reward, of course, but another hook, right? A, a carrot dangled in front of him to complement all the sticks they've been employing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this is, huh, I we're, we have to talk about this in detail because it's so important, but I really, really don't want to. Yeah. Because it, it's just, it's just devastating. Yeah.
0: It's very, it's successfully painful. So Aaron rambles about how she's recently started thinking she could actually be attracted to him. She tells him he's way more attractive than Nick Cage, which is a lie because Nick Cage is a truly beautiful man,
1: yeah, and he was really good in the breakfast club. <laughs> what the fuck the breakfast club <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so um, she, i I know I know exactly but this is,
1: but this is also like. I mean it's it's hilarious that we see another little flavor bit of uh how this world's movies are a little bit off, but also the idea of No, you're way more attractive than Nicolas Cage is <laughs> <laughs> like the worst fucking compliment yeah. ever. I mean like I, not that Nicolas Cage is a bad looking dude, but I don't think like he's he's kind of funny looking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's not conventionally attractive. Not a heartthrob. No. Yeah. Well, you know, we're being, she's she's being honest. Yeah. So she tells him she's been sitting here for hours, convincing herself that as she says, uh, this is the only way I get anything close to a happy ending. But Rain rejects her. He knows it's a poison gift. Being fallen will destroy Aaron, and it's not even an option for him as much as part of him wants it has wanted it. And he says, I'd die for you, but I can't be fallen. And she, she replies, then fucking die rain.
1: And this is such an important moment. This is tragic. This is awful. What, what Aaron is having to go through the the horror of needing to convince yourself that this is what you want because you have no other choice. It's tragic and awful. But at the same time, I think this is this is really the the moment that we realize just how much rain has changed. We've seen him at his worst. We've seen his dream. Now we've seen the things he did. We've seen um, me hitting my microphone while I'm talking. Um, and now we've seen the fallen here. Give him the thing he wants the most. This is them giving everything he wanted. The reason he triggered um, being a part of something being accepted like a happy ending this is what he wants aaron is what he wants more than anything and and he he can't he can't do it this time he can't he made the the choice before he made the choice to not take the lock off and take the chain off because he was scared of losing acceptance of his peers he was scared of of what it would mean what he would lose and he makes that choice now he makes this choice knowing that he is going to lose aaron knowing that this choice will separate him from aaron possibly forever and and that he'll end up possibly alone and and then dead and he's willing to pay this price now and that's great he says i would die for you and he would he would do anything for her but he won't do that Mm -hmm. that's meatloaf that's a meatloaf
0: (laughs) meatloaf another beautiful man (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's Perfectly, dramatically crafted, and and as much as it as much as it rips your heart out in this moment, you're I, I don't know I, I was so like pr- proud of him in this moment. I was too.
1: I was too. And and that that's that's it's such a complicated feeling, right? Because at the same time, you're devastated for Aaron. You know that he's left Aaron in this situation now, where she's basically screwed. I mean, I'm sure he's going to when, once everything breaks and the war happens I'm sure he's going to try to save Aaron in some way I don't think he's given up on Aaron on rescuing Aaron from this place but um, he does kind of just leave her here and so you're you're proud of him you're proud of this growth that he's made you're devastated for her it's just it's just just so many emotions yeah well
0: the the place that he's in is is terrible I mean I I, I guess we can move forward to to get to what I was gonna say but like he he has nothing now but the alternative was worse than having nothing right so these are just like the worst possible dilemma in the world
1: yeah i mean it's 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 poetic right all he wanted to be in the world was the fallen and that's what he wanted and now all he has to do is be fallen to get the one thing in the world he wants yeah and he can't
0: do it. This is this is realistic in terms of cults too. Like like I I know there you know the people who are really deep into like for example Scientology um they they have nothing. Like, like le- they legally own nothing. So if they leave if they leave the cult they just they're 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 homeless. They have no assets. Their yeah. life is completely ruined. So it's like a choice between nothing and something worse than death and some of most of them can't even choose the nothing choice. Some, a yeah. very small number of them do. Yeah. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I can't imagine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. So he escapes from the house with his blades and he runs later. He makes contact with March using an elaborate phone code he arrives at her base and finds her to be a petite woman with a rabbit mask and an old-fashioned military uniform.
1: Oh, I get it—like the the march hare, but also like a soldier marching. I guess Man, so. Wildbo is loving Alice in Wonderland references. Yeah, I'm. Or or Alice General because the other one was through the looking glass.
0: That's that's correct. Scott. I'm wondering if we should be making more of these references, perhaps.
1: I I think we should start paying attention. to things i
0: agree i I wonder if there's a particular other character who could be viewed as going on some kind of i don't know where i'm going with that um
1: (laughs) you started that sentence and you didn't know how to finish it
0: i could catch that ball as it (laughs) as it came toward me um yeah so uh march so so we've been given the excellent advice on our show that we should explain who people are if it's not oh, clear. Oh yeah. And we keep forgetting We're, to do it. We keep forgetting to do that. Um thanks Stephen. Um so March is the uh cluster member w- who who we understand from context here is Foil's cluster mate who is seems more on the kiss uh, sorry, I should say more on the kill spectrum of things on the on the uh, on, on the kiss kill spectrum. Um and this seems the, like it seems like it seems like it. And this is the person who contacted Rain in in his glowworm um, glowworm chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what's going on here. And we had a very, very vague reference to the existence of of foil having a cluster mate back in worm. Uh, and I think we are to assume that that is who this is referring to.
1: Yeah, it was like a really toss away reference. Like they were talking about multi triggers and how um, they tend to have power sets that match each other. Right. And someone asked her offhand, it's like, did anyone trigger near the same time you? And it's like, yeah. And she turned out to be a real pain in my ass or something. Yeah. And that's like the most we got um, within Worm itself. I think there was uh, words of God that fleshed that out. But in the story proper, that's really all we had until this point.
0: Yes, you're right. There was more word of God about it, but I was, yeah, sticking to the to the text. So, yeah. Good. So, other clusters are present. March demands foil in exchange for helping Rain.
1: We don't exactly know what, for what, though, do we? Yeah. Um, rain, like, implies that March wants her dead, yeah. but gets neither confirmation nor denial of that fact. Just, just push that off. Right. Um, either way, it's probably... It's probably not going to be good.
0: <laughs> yeah, because, you know, where Rain's head is, he's like, yeah, of course you want her dead because everyone in yeah. Clusters wants that, right? Um, yeah. But it, it could be something else. You're right.
1: And the, and the I think the the important part of that for us in the immediate is that Rain thinks that she wants her dead and is OK with that. It seems accepting of that. It's like, OK, you're going to want her dead. Um, OK, yeah. well, I'll add this to my list of people I'm going to need to kill.
0: Yeah, which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah now as he as he heads to bed in this in this place it, it's the fifth night of the rotation so none of them remember the dream whatever it is then they all wait for the allotment of powers to fall to one of them randomly and it falls to rain a piece <gasps> of glass and a coin in addition to his usual fragments of metal
1: so i'm trying to remember the the coin was cradle and the glass was snag right
0: I believe so. I I, I think that the teeth were love lost. So, yes, um, yeah. it had to. It's, it's yeah. So it's the tinker power and the mover power. Yeah.
1: So on this all important day of the war, Rain is going to have slightly better tinker power and slightly better mover power. Um, everything's coming up, Millhouse.
0: Yep. Yeah. And, and I again, this is the moment where like he's sitting here and he's, he's sitting here in his chair and he's just like desolate yeah, because he's he's given up everything and, and he's but he's like calm because I don't remember exactly the wording, but it's like he has nothing left to lose now. So mm-hmm. he's able to be very yeah. calm
1: and the chapter finishes with tomorrow. One of us is going to be dead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Well, Matt, we just here. took
1: an hour to talk about one chapter. Uh, we
0: did it. I, I have no regrets. We did it. Yep. Yeah. Five dot six. <laughs> 5.6, let's see Let's see what we do on 5.6. All right. So back with Victoria, uh, she's getting off the train with Sveta. Um, Victoria is trying to prioritize planning and preparing for the coming battle, but Sveta is hard-selling her on coming to the apartment to hang out with Weld. Um, I, I just love this passage uh, where um, Sveta is saying, but I'm worried about that attitude now. If I had real hands, I'd reach up and feel your shoulders to see how tense you are. I relax my shoulders as casually and naturally as possible. And then Sveta continues, if you're stiffer than the girl with the prosthetic body and her metal boyfriend, you need to relax. Spend some time with me and Weld. We'll talk about tomorrow. And I just, I just love this book so much. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, It's great. And I think what this also does is kind of sets the tone for the entire chapter too, which is this much more mellow, calm before the storm type of thing. There is tension. There is underlying tension under all of this. Um, but it's kind of relegated to the background. Um, there's like, we're going to have to deal with the stuff. We're going to have to talk about the stuff, but that's, that's tomorrow's problem today. We're going to get to see a day in the life of some, some monstrous capes. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It
0: is. So Sveta wins out and convinces her to invite crystal too.
1: With some small, wonderful world building moments, like crystal being listed as best cousin <laughs> in Victoria's phone, which is perfect.
0: Yes. Tristan is coming as well, turns out. Uh, the the two women walk together into one of the quainter areas of the city. On the way there, she gets a text indicating that the wardens want a nighttime meeting. Ashley also tells her that she is moving in to Hollow Point. Oh, good. Yeah. It's, comforting. it's a great place to be. Yeah. So this all prompts Sveta, this, this mention of Ashley prompts Sveta to relate a story about a dinner involving Ashley Ashley and herself and Weld and Director Armstrong, who was Weld's sort of surrogate father or mentor or whatever, where Ashley had said she would rather be monstrous than than look as she does, because it would fit more naturally with how she felt on the inside. And Sveta countered that that wasn't really fair. That you can't ever get a break from being monstrous and she doesn't really know what she's talking about.
1: Yeah, this is I think this is really great. And I think this is really um, a, a really great way to, to dive into these two characters. And and one of the things we're doing on this, this day of rest before everything breaks terrible um, is really kind of shining a light on some of our characters in this moment before everything's probably going to get worse. And I think the scene is so interesting so like to so set this up we have this we have this scene where all four of them are talking and Sveta specifically notes in her memory that most of the time it was two or three of the four of us talking and the rest didn't have anything to add so like this isn't a group conversation it's kind of disjointed and different people and and svetta says it's because we're so different from each other we have nothing in common and there's a central disconnect and and then ashley makes that comment that uh, well points out how people stare and she's like well i wish i was like that because That that means like I would be naturally perceived as scary and and that's what I want. Um, And it's interesting here that we focus on the fact that both Weld and Armstrong attempt to explain to Ashley why that's not good and she shouldn't want to be like them. And it doesn't work for either of them. Sveta specifically says in her story that it wasn't getting through. So then she tries, and she relates it to wearing certain clothing or having a certain kind of attitude. The, these things are impermanent. You can change them. Uh, Sveta can't change. Weld can't change. And that's what works. That's what ends up getting through to Ashley. Sveta tailors the argument to the things that Ashley kind of likes and enjoys and deals with, and she finally gets it. And that's the first time they, they've they connected. And then we see the scene ends with... Um, she understood. And then all of us were talking. Now everyone's come together. Sveta has brought this group together and that's Sveta's role in this group, Matt. And I think like, I, you know, there's the, the, there's a tendency to try to archetype characters, especially characters in a group. Like I'm sure you've heard of like the five man band and the power trio terms that are like when you try to, um, peg every character in a group with an archetype. Yeah. And, Neither of those apply here for reasons that are obvious, because there's more than five of them. Um, but but one of the one of the five man band archetypes is the heart, and they serve to unify the team, to to calm people down, to bring people together, to to be the connecting tissue between all members of the group. And that is really what Sveta is here. And I think that's what we're seeing here in this moment, that, that her ability to do this is one of her powers.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, Weld does say that she's the heart and that's kind of Weld's.
1: Oh, yeah. I forgot he specifically said that. Yeah. Well, um, but I think we also learn about Ashley, right? I think that, that this is this is teaching us about Ashley that like. The idea that. With her fashion and with the the persona that she emits to everyone. Um, is this something we've talked about before that this is a way to project outward? The way she feels about herself inward, and it's so strong. Her the, the, her inward feelings about who she is and what she is are so strong that she welcomes the idea of being a, te- a scary tentacle monster um, because that would better reflect how she feels on the inside. And that's awful, isn't it? Like, and and whether it's the shard and her connection to the shard, or bone saws pre programming, or or both, like she has the strong desire to act and dress the way that she feels on the inside. And that's, I mean, that's a very relatable thing, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, I had forgotten about this until what you just said kind of shook it loose. But like when she was created, she had giant like prosthetic claw hands. Yeah. So she was monstrous and she's been modified to to be able to pass, but she has prosthetic arms. I mean, she's, she's, um, she is, she is a as much of a kind of deviation as the rest of them. I think
1: I wonder how much this relates back to everything we've been talking about with rain, how this, I mean, even I think Ashley was the one that said, you just got to fake like the whole fake it till you make it thing. She was pushing back against Victoria that you just haven't had time to actually become that person. So there's this, this tendency that like, you just try really hard to become the person that you want to be. And eventually it'll just be true. And it seems like she feels like she has to try really hard to be this villain, this, this monster Yeah. so much so that she wants, she wants her external self to replicate that.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. We could, could, could talk about Ashley all day, um, but I think, I think I'll move on actually all right. uh, to this next bit about Ashley. Where uh, she also (laughs) where Sveta also relates a story about visiting Ashley's apartment and seeing how she has a small number of expensive furnishings that she loves. And the rest of the apartment is just full of boxes. Um, And Sveta says, I could see the person she might have been without powers or the kid she was before powers.
1: Yeah, that's so heartbreaking. Like she Ashley likes fashion and she likes things and she likes nice looking things that are well made and well put together and look good. And that's just kind of who she is. And she cares about that kind of thing. And, and you know, we can relate this to the metaphor about how she feels internally all day. And I think that is partially true. But there there is also just a part of her personality that just likes these things. Yeah. And I think that's a common thread with Victoria. Like, Victoria really likes clothes, too. Victoria really likes fashion. She likes things that look good. Yeah. And that's a connecting tissue between the two of them.
0: Yeah. So so the the thought of seeing her as, as a kid kind of makes me consider like why does a person want to be scary and intimidating well it strikes me that usually the reason is that they are scared yeah yeah they feel they feel powerless and they want to the, the, their their armor is to scare people away from them so that they don't have to engage with those people either in violence or in just interaction um and, and this is i honestly think probably what's going on with Ashley I mean she's talked before about seeing like the depths of humanity and and how horrible things can be um so so yeah I I think I think that is that is why she is this way she's not she's not like an evil person she's she's kind of a scared kid at the very core in my opinion yeah I
1: think I think you're right I think that's a good way of putting it yeah I didn't I didn't pick up the use of kid there but I think that is significant
0: yeah so they arrive at the apartment and are treated to the most wonderful scene of domestic contentment. Sveta and Weld <laughs> have made a lovely home together and it's clear that they adore and support each other. They customize their home using their relative artistic strengths.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of specific stuff I want to pull out here. I just want to say that I, I love this all so much. Um, this couple is made out of two characters that that mean so much to us and mean so much to each other. And this is one of those moments where A few seconds after it, you start to feel this kind of haunting dread because you realize that the scene of domestic tranquility is temporary and and it might be like the last gasp of a life that they're never going to be able to have because we, we are on the eve of things getting real bad, most likely. And this might be like the best they were ever going to be together. And we might never see them this happy together again. Mm-hmm. And that is depressing. Yeah.
0: Now you've said it out loud, Scott. I'm sorry. I was, that's the thing is like, while reading it, that's kind of like nudging at the edges of your mind, but you're like, la 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 la. This is yeah. all wonderful. I love this. It, we're right. We're in this moment right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the chapter does do things to reinforce that feeling and we'll get into some of them as we go.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, they're in there. Victoria asks Weld to look over her report for the wardens and reminds, um, and, he, and he reminds her of his offer to help with her, uh, with metalwork for her costume—an offer which he made before she became a squid.
1: Yeah, let's just go ahead and re- reinforce once again that Weld is the best person ever, just so it stings like extra hard when he dies horribly. Yeah, in a few chapters. Yeah.
0: So uh, his feedback on her report is that it's good tactical knowledge, but doesn't contain a compelling story for why the wardens should get involved. Victoria decides the sales pitch will focus on uh, avoiding allowing a destructive Hatfield and McCoy feud to start while there's a bigger war brewing. Um, And we get this thought chain from her where she's, she's thinking the last time I'd been in something of this scale, I'd been spit on by a mutant the size of a truck and had most of my flesh melted off and necrotized and I'd been left vulnerable and helpless. At that point in time, with the pain being as bad as it was, my emotions all over the map, as I thought one thing and felt another, I'd been ready to die. I hadn't done nearly enough, but I'd fought and I was ready for it to be over. The chance at living hadn't been worth the risk of being healed. Tuttletail had lied to me and had forced Amy on me. She had some small responsibility for everything that followed. So this is uh, a lot, Pat. Yeah, the, It's a lot? The chain of, of thinking here... I, yeah, I, I almost don't have a, a huge amount to say because it's like it's all right there for you to see, you know.
1: Yeah, but- I, I I did go back to arc fourteen of Worm mm-hmm. and reread this ch- the chapter that they're talking about here because I was I was curious about to to make sure I was up on the details of how this all actually went down, and um, and I think that. Victoria is being a little uncharitable to Tattletail here. Shocker. Yeah. Um, Tattletail is like throughout this whole thing being like, keep her alive and then fix what you did to her head. And and that's, and she did lie. I mean, she said the the lie is that she's going to pour water in things that'll, that'll uh, nullify the burns of the acid. And what she really does is push Amy towards her, um, which probably was taking away someone's, um, like it was ignoring what Victoria wanted which is not great but it was doing so in the effort to help her and save her life and of course she had no idea that Tattletail had no idea that the squid was going to happen like you can't blame her for that she had no idea that it was going to go down that way way so I think this just kind of reflects how her extreme hatred for Tattletail and 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 exactly why because she blames her for everything else that happens
0: yeah yeah no, I I agree that um She's really stretching here. Um, so Victoria fields some emails and some, some chats, including emails from Tristan, Byron, and Presley from the, from the train, who is asking about Ashley's hair, and a chat discussion mainly involving Creepy Kid and Kenzie. So before we dive into Chris for a
1: little bit, and
0: side note, title
1: took called Chris key- Creepy Kid, and then the next thing we see, he's changed his email to Creepy Kid, <laughs> and that's hilarious? Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about Presley from the train and and that we call out this beat. Um we're we're calling back to this moment, if everyone recalls that um Ashley and Victoria had this whole confrontation on a train related to uh the perception and 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 goodwill and and um putting goodness out there and and giving people positive reactions to you and how that can propagate and, and do well. And then we're reminded that that Presley's reaction or that, uh, yeah, Presley's reaction to the photo that, that Victoria sent him, sent them, um, made Ashley genuinely happy, which is something we forgot to call it, cover on the, the episode itself. We did not cover, uh, Ashley's reaction to the photo, which was genuine happiness. And Victoria connects this happiness back to the idea of Ashley with her, her important things and this light that she might have inside her. Um, And then right after thinking about that, we get this moment where Presley emails her and says, hey, how do I get my hair as white as your friends? Almost as if this reaction, this interaction was so positive for her that now she's trying to emulate this person. Possibly she's trying to like copy her look possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And this this beat of happiness amongst all this tension like that, like I think Victoria recognizes that Ashley's going to like this. This is going to make her happy. She's going to enjoy this. And she's like, I need to save this for her because she's going to like it. And I think that's great. And I think it kind of supports Victoria's idea of leave people with positive interactions and you can you can do good.
0: Yeah, it's a little shift, a little tiny shift in terms of Victoria's perception of Ashley, I think. Yeah. Um, And this is evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris says that he wants to get his hands dirty. And Victoria ponders this and kind of concludes her train of thought with, I couldn't understand him.
1: Yeah, and this... I thought about this for a long time, Matt, because one of the things I've been noticing as we've been going through these things is that of all the misfit toys, Chris is the one we focused on the least. We understand the least about his background, about who he is, about where he came from, about everything. And part of that is is because Chris is a very sheltered and, and cut off person. He doesn't like to share this stuff. He's very uncomfortable with sharing it with anyone. But part of it, Matt, is that Victoria hasn't really spent a lot of time trying to understand Chris. He's one of the mysteries that she, she hasn't seemed to have a lot of motivation to solve. Um, and I think we kind of see this here. She, she considers his motivations for a couple minutes, thinks about, about them, about what he wants, that he wants to get his hands dirty. He wants to be in the thick of it, thinks about it for a little bit and then just goes, I just couldn't understand him moving on.
0: Eh, Just moving on. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's fair. Like she, she doesn't spend a lot of page space thinking about him. And she also doesn't really kind of take him one-on-one to talk to him. You know, she's, she's had one-on-ones with Sveta. She's had one-on-ones with Kenzie. She's had one-on-ones with Tristan. Um, She, she has at least like touched base with rain in a way that seemed meaningful. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, she's, she's definitely had some one-on-one time with Ashley um, I I don't know that she's ever been, like had, had her moment of like, okay, I'm going to actually bother to try to connect with this young man. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why or, or if there even needs to be a why it could just be like, oh, it hasn't come up. But uh, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right that she hasn't really put in put in the time to understand Chris.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder why that is. Besides, I mean, the the general reason is that Chris is not really willing to do that either. Um, So she's not really getting anything from him. So she's not giving anything to him. Um, That's
0: that's true. You do get the sense that if she did, like, come on strong, wanting to have a conversation, he would, like, rebuff her with mega snark, you know? Yeah. 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 And she probably knows that, too. So, yeah. Yeah, anyway, so Crystal arrives with Victoria's giant bag of costume stuff, and we're treated to a bounty of costume talk. Victoria wants armor, a warrior angel look, according to Weld, a hood too, like Amy's costume had included, but no mask. She's embracing her outness. She's going to have spikes or rays at the shoulders, uneven, uh, which are meant to very subtly uh, suggest the, the presence of the wretch.
1: Yeah. There's like so much to pick apart here, Matt, that we could probably do this thing for an hour. Um, I've read this whole part like 20 times and I found something new each time. Like like the big one is that idea that she's embracing the wretch, like that. She's decided that the wretch coming out is an eventuality and she should at least theme around it, Um, which is like, I think, huge progress for her. Yeah, that's a big that's a big, big deal. Yeah. Um, Then there's the fact that she chose the hood. Um, and specifically noted that Amy used a hood also. Right. Um, that's a big thing. The the breastplate being function over style is a big thing. Victoria is still struggling with her own body image and, and exposing herself or, or making something form fitting does not make her comfortable. She goes from big, like overfitting sweatshirt to now breastplate that is not really shaped to her body. It's just kind of just a chunk of a metal, um, and there's also that the, the color scheme of the costume seems to be black and white, which is interesting, Matt. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Black and white. Yes. Just no grays.
0: Interesting, Just yes.
1: Bad guys and good guys. guys. Victoria.
0: <laughs> like it. Like it.
1: Yeah. So I mean, and there's there's so much more there. Like, uh, we'll get into the costume a little bit more later when she's she makes it seem like she's missing something. But yeah. this is this is a huge deal for Victoria. Like we talk so much about um the the importance of costumes and names and how you are presenting yourself. And, and we know this is important to Victoria. So this is big. Yeah. I encourage everyone to read this multiple times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this made me feel terrible, but I, I, there's this bit where, um, Sveta talks about babysitting some of the local kids in the apartment complex. And I'm going to confess that I felt a stab of terror at the idea of Sveta babysitting kids, Um, and then I immediately felt terrible about it because it seems so unfair to her, but yeah,
1: it's
0: very, it's very, uh, as a parent, you know, you're always, you're always subconsciously looking out for like sharp corners and, and like knives or scissors that people have left out or like people who, if like their containment shell cracks, they, they would just like spurt out tendrils in all directions that would just sever people into pieces. Yeah. You gotta be on the lookout for that stuff. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I had almost the
1: exact same reaction. So don't feel don't feel too bad. OK, um, good. let's talk about the kid, though, okay. because I think this is something that the chapter does. That's very interesting, because from the second we've gotten to the apartment, we've hit this beat about kids multiple times when she first got to the apartment, Victoria notes that she could see children's toys in the yard. Then when she's sitting inside the apartment, she looks out like the back window and sees a toy plane parked on, on the lawn, the kind that a kid could sit in and push with their feet. And then the last bit of it is, um, we finally see the owner of all these to- toys, a five or six year old neighbor kid. That's like standing by their back door and just like pushing his face against the glass. And, <laughs> and Very which is hilarious. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you got to ask yourself why? Why is this here? What does what purpose does this serve? And remember, we have to say writing is intentional. There's a reason why not only did we show this kid, but we kind of reinforced this through several beats. Um, and I think when you put it in context of the rest of this chapter, I think it kind of makes makes a lot more sense. This is this is a picture of domestic life. You've got the the messy house, the playful banter between the couple, uh, the toys in the yard, uh, the the dealing with the kids. The kids are like there's a, there's a beat where the kid is like fascinated by, uh, laser dreams, um, um, force field and is like staring at it and fascinated by it. And this is building up of like what, what a normal, typical life of happiness would look for these people. Um, but, but it's not, it's not to be because like, uh, we're having like Sveta and Weld can't have kids, right? They they can't. It's impossible. Um, from everything we know about the case 53s, I don't think they can they can reproduce. Um, so this is kind of a life that they're just they're just kind of playing at a little bit. And this is what this is what I mean when you get this feeling that this is this is something that is going to be coming to an end, that this is something that is not permanent, that is not this standard, peaceful domestic life is not what's destined for these people
0: no i refuse to accept any of that they're they're <laughs> immediately they're gonna stay here forever this is f- forever okay happily ever after
1: i good luck with that
0: quote it's a wild boat quote and then they live happily ever yeah. after
1: <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't sound
0: like no, one that's that. how worm ended okay oh yeah did you forget huh. yeah
1: i guess i did
0: yeah um, sigh. You're right. I'm sure. So yeah. So while she's talking to Sveta, she confess. She ends up confessing her name for the wretch, uh, because she kind of almost says it, and then Sveta's like, "What are you gonna say?" So Victoria's too anxious to continue talking about it, even though Sveta offers to teach her some of the control tools that Yamada had taught her.
1: Yeah, it's like almost as if you share your problems with other people, they can like help you deal with them. Because mm-hmm. they might have advice and different methods like communication, yeah. Yeah. Matt.
0: Reaching out. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So Tristan shows up a bit later. Time is time is passing and kind of chunks in, in, a, in a way that makes you feel like these people are really settling in and, and getting comfortable with each other.
1: Yeah, you're getting snapshots of happiness, which is another way that we're reinforcing that this is temporary. <laughs> Matt.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, Tristan shows up with Natalie. Natalie just seems kind of pissed off at everything. Um, I'm so eager to learn what's going on with her. I mean, I'm pretty sure that she dislikes capes and cape stuff. And I I just can't possibly imagine why any mundane human would dislike capes. No earthly idea.
1: No, no. Uh, To her credit, she's in kind of an awkward situation. She walks into this room filled with capes and some of them uh, look different and they're talking about like capsaicin laced Chinese food. And mm-hmm. like, I think I cleared out all the ones that had this stuff in it, but if, if it tastes funny, just stop eating it. So she's kind of like thrust into this world that she is not a part of. Yeah. And it's super overwhelming for her. Um, but I am also very interested what her deal is. We talked a little bit in the discussion section about it. I think seeing, You know, how she really feels about all this stuff, like seeing an honest depiction of of how Natalie feels like an interlude from Natalie's perspective would be (laughs) really fascinating. It would be. Um, And I I hope we get that.
0: Yeah. So they finally get to talking about the fallen, focusing on the kidnappings, Um, focusing on the and and of course, this reminds us of of Lachlan and I'm developing a theory that Lucklin is a cape. By the way, um, that's, oh, that's the whole theory. Really? That's pretty much the whole theory. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so they specifically say they believe Rain's clan is the Mathers, and they need to keep cameras off the Fallen in this case, which is a damn good idea.
1: Yeah. Had it, M- Mama's power, Veilforce power, does it work? Does it function through cameras? Had had that been confirmed prior?
0: I wouldn't be surprised if it did. But maybe not. Yeah. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, so Natalie seems okay with their plan, but says she thinks that uh, the kids being Kenzie and Chris should not be involved. Victoria and Tristan say, um, uh, they say, no, uh, the kids <laughs> are coming. Um, and and uh, Chris refers to, or someone refers to Chris's form, uh, the ones he's planning on using as sudden shock and deep reflection. I can't wait to see what that is.
1: Yeah, I think we need a like a I think we need like a Chris spreadsheet that's tracking these emotions in yeah. these forms. Um Yeah, absolutely. You feel bad for Natalie again though cuz it's like we want you here to give us your advice until your advice disagrees with what we want to do yeah. and then we just tell you no. Yeah, right. No.
0: And you're just and she's just like why are you even <laughs> Yeah. So we skip ahead to the big deal meeting with the warden's leadership.
1: Yeah. And I, I think this wild Boat uses a really cool transition here and it's like kind of this in media res cut from Victoria outlining the plan to, uh, her group, misfit toys and company to Victoria in the middle of the, the meeting doing the same for the wardens. And it's this very cinematic trick that, uh, movies use a lot actually. And, and it's, I enjoy it. It's very cinematic. I like, I like that kind of cut.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, so we see who's here, you know, Victoria got Valkyrie out of bed for this shit, so it better be good. <laughs> Chevalier leads the meeting and Victoria gives her presentation in costume and she thinks the costume feels almost right. Almost.
1: What do you think it's missing, Matt?
0: I don't know. I really don't. It's going to be interesting. Yeah.
1: Is there any is there any fan art of this costume yet?
0: I do haven't seen know? any. I haven't seen any yet. Okay. Hmm, interesting. Um so I love how I love how realistic Um, this all feels like it feels like giving an important presentation at work. You know, (laughs) Um, Chevalier uses her own outline as the roadmap for the conversation.
1: Yeah, this is this. The entire rest of the chapter is a PowerPoint presentation and I am riveted.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Maybe
1: it's because my boy Chevalier is finally here and I love him. Yeah. But I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a cool moment we've been building towards.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely.
0: So there's a, there's a, there's a few small things in here like the the misfit toys reference a tinker trap that they plan to to deploy at some point. I have no idea what this is.
1: Yeah, I went some I did some digging too to see if maybe I just missed when they talked about this. I don't I don't know if this has been talked about at all. Um my guess is I it's Kenzie focused probably cuz Kenzie's our tinker, right? So maybe it's just like tripwire flash guns Or something? I don't know. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of kind of hints that could make you guess at it, but I'm not going to embarrass myself there. Yeah, yeah. So the team actually seems to have a pretty circumspect view of what they're capable of. They're intending only to get involved at the periphery, to deter, to monitor, to pick off stragglers, to defend civilians. So I can't wait to see how it becomes a disaster anyway.
1: Yeah, so my question for you is how much of that is true to their real plan? Because... They kind of I mean, we'll see in a couple seconds that they just lie to to Chevalier like (laughs) up and down. But their main focus in this whole thing is to protect rain. Right. So, yeah, they'll play on the periphery until he gets in danger. And then like that Mm. is something that they don't share at all with the wardens. Well,
0: They don't know where he is. And maybe they're hoping he just stays out of here and. I think it's in, not going to happen. I think in the, here, here's the problem. It's been the problem all along. It's like in this moment, this is their plan. As soon as something goes sideways and they're like, oh, a good guy cape is out of position. Let's all run in there and help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So so Chevalier volunteers some but not a lot of firepower, including advance guard, which, of course, annoys Victoria because she's sick of them.
1: Yeah. And they specifically said they were out. So I'm sure they're not going to be thrilled with the assignment either. Yeah. But also the young wardens are coming, which includes Weld, Matt. So he's totally going to (laughs) live, right? Right?
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: It's Weld. He's fine. He's fine.
0: Actually, Um, I think I privately shared with you earlier today that my fear isn't that he's going to die. It's going to be that he doesn't die.
1: Oh, yeah, that'll be 20 million times worse. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to um, leave
0: that cryptic, actually. Yeah,
1: let's do that. Yeah. Um, there is there is a small beat in here where Chevalier says that Valkyrie can't come. And for a second, I was like, wait, why not? But then I remembered putting Valkyrie within like a thousand yards of Valefor or Mama Mathers is probably like a really bad idea. Uh-huh. And either way, like Valkyrie getting Veilford would be really bad. But her getting Veilfor's power as one of her shadows would be super bad, too. So, like, either way, this is bad news. So they're just like, yeah, you're going to you're going to sit this one out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. And and then, and, you know, there's always a risk that she could just, you know, be killed, too. And and yeah, then that they've too. lost super powerful utility. So.
1: But let's be honest, Matt, she can't she can't be killed. Yeah. You're right. Come on. Come
0: on. I know. So. um Any final thoughts or concerns? Chevalier asks and everyone lies and says no.
1: (laughs) Yep. And I I like this is how we finish and I like how we do it here because Sveta says no with with something that could be mistaken for timidity. But it was just that she's thinking of all the things that she wants to say, but doesn't. Um, Tristan, on the other hand, says it with complete and utter confidence. He's not worried about anything. And then Victoria, Victoria's is the last to chime in with no. I added my lie to theirs. So we're dealing with the big boys for the first time and we're starting with some good old fashioned dishonesty.
0: Yep. They just got to keep it all together, which means not show any of the truth that's happening. To be, f-
1: to be fair, explaining to this group all the issues that they have <laughs> basically would make Chevalier go, get the fuck out of yeah. here. This is like, right. no,
0: no. Yeah. No, in in fact, we're putting you all in jail. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, that's that's a pretty good point.
1: Yeah. So that's how we end this chapter, though. Um. So uh, we're going to get into it next week. So the the battle has come. What? How do you think this is going to work structurally? Do you think we're going to get? Because for those of that are listening, we're recording Monday night, so Tuesday's chapter has not come out yet. Um. Do you think it's going to be the interlude for for arc five or? Think we're going to go into one more chapter i could see us going into one more chapter that like starts the conflict and then doing an interlude to wrap things up and then arc six is the the war i could see that happening
0: i'm going to go ahead and, and bet that that arc that arc six starts next i'm just going to bet that so there's not going to be a,
1: another interlude you're saying
0: yeah that's what. I'm okay
1: saying. man bold
0: well bold yeah i mean this is always the problem with my predictions is instead of having a prediction, I have like three possibilities that I put different weights on. So I can see it going either way, but I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to say,
1: I mean, Matt, you just pick the one that has the most weight
0: on and that's your prediction. That's the one. And, and it's going to (laughs) be, it's going to be, I'm going to find out in a handful of hours, whether I'm right or wrong. In fact, in fact, it'll be the, the new chapter will probably be out before this, no, it will be out before this podcast is out, so you can all Possibly. know whether I'm wrong or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. Alright. We said we weren't in the prediction game anymore. And apparently that's just complete lie.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um all right. Well that, that wraps it up. Let's let's do a little tiny bit of name game.
1: Yeah, we already kinda of hinted toward this, but we have March, who is uh the March hare is a character from uh Alice. I don't I don't
0: one it's of definitely the, in
1: *Through the Looking Glass*. It's one of it's, one of
0: the Alice stories. It's yeah, it's *Through the Looking Glass*. It is. Um, Man. And wait a second! Oh, I'm so confused. I have the Wikipedia open. I need to. We need to read these. We just need to read these.
1: Yeah, we just. I just. I, just, I didn't. Was not expecting to have to read all of Lewis Carroll in preparation for *We've Got Ward*. But apparently, I do.
0: Yeah, well, I think Weldon was fond of the classics, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what, what, the connotation of of, of uh, the March Hare is that the March Hare is insane, like the mm-hmm. Mad Hatter. Yeah, um, there's probably some other connotations that I'm missing due to being ignorant, but uh, we'll we'll try to catch up on that.
1: Yeah, we will. I'll find time in my copious free time to yeah. read some Lewis Carroll. We
0: should do a Lewis Carroll podcast just so we can understand all this stuff. It sounds great. All right, so. This week's discussion question, um, we had a couple of candidates here and I think you and I ended up settling on the following. What does Victoria want out of all this?
1: Simple question, complicated answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because like, I think there's a way you can just regurgitate what the text has said literally so far, but I I encourage you guys to, to dive a little deeper, um. And really, really get really get to the root of her character. Yeah, and and to interpret it the way you the way you think. I'm I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, I know uh, I say that every week, but I mean it like times two this week. Yeah.
0: Well, now that I've come to expect that people are going to bring like perspectives that I just never could have arrived at on my own. I'm like you said. I'm super super psyched about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, that's all we've got for you this week on We've Got Ward. Remember that you guys are all part of the show now, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading.
1: You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mail I, I couldn't think of something, Matt. I choked. I choked. Sorry. you know. I was trying to do something related to this chapter instead of just saying nonsense. Yeah. And it's nothing came. You know, there's a it's lot of
0: landmines in the chapter this week. I wouldn't want you to accidentally, yeah, that's true. Go to the wrong place. So if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts.
1: And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film and TV criticism, and more, over at DailyPlanetFilms.com. This week, over on our main feed. Matt and I talked about RuPaul's Drag Race season 4. It was a really great conversation. This was one of our uh, Kryptonian level reward donors um from Murder Death Hug asked us to watch this and do a podcast about it. So we did that and it's a lot of fun, Matt. Yeah. I really I really enjoyed that discussion.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it was I did not anticipate having as much fun watching those and talking about them as uh, I ended up having.
1: Yeah, yeah. Also, over on our other show, Vow of You, Elise and I are going to be discussing Disney princesses, which means Elise is going to sing the entire time.
0: As usual. Yes, yes, that's true. Sadly, true. So if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new planeteers at the $1 level, Stephen... John, Cybele, Generous Nat, and MFLS, and at the $2 level, Graham. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing with it.
1: And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to iTunes and leaving us a rating and a review. You can be like Barla Venting, who gives us five stars and says... You saved our marriage. Just kidding. Well, you would have saved our marriage had it need saving. My husband and I started reading Worm back when we were dating in college. He had already finished by the time I started reading it. So in a way, he and I got to experience what Matt and Scott went through with the original podcast. This podcast has allowed us to re-experience Worm in a new light and helps make those absent next chapter links in Ward that much bear- more bearable. Barla, uh, thank you so much for your kind words and that review. I'm very glad your marriage didn't need saving, but I'm going to take credit for it anyway. So the new slogan on We've Got Ward is saving marriages since 2018, um, which will be a quote that sounds a lot better when it's no longer 2018. But but I still like it. I'm still going to do it.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, we only got uh, nine months to wait. OK, Just uh, saving marriages. Yes. That's what it, we do. That's what we do. Alright, that's it for the show this week. Next week, um... Arc (laughs) 6? Who knows? More Ward. Who
1: knows? (laughs) Bye-bye. Teams felled.